0: This is Freedom Investor Radio, and I'm John Pearl. It hit me like a freight train when I realized there was a better way. When I discovered that I could take my future into my own hands. When I realized I could invest my way to freedom. This is what I'm working towards. In each episode of Freedom Investor Radio, we will explore the tactics and strategies used by the top real estate investors and entrepreneurs in the nation. We will learn how you... Can start investing your way to freedom and take control of your life. Thanks so much for tuning in. What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of Freedom Investor Radio. I'm your host, John Pearl. And today I am joined by Sean Chuplis, who is the founder of Airworthy Capital. Sean, welcome to the show today. Thanks for having me, John yeah absolutely. So so Sean, I'm gonna pass it over to you if you could tell us a little bit about yourself and what you're doing and kind of give us the high level about how you got there.
1: Yeah, kind of my background. I spent a lot of my background in the military. so I've been flying since I was eighteen and had a lot of experience trading my time for my career or time for money. And after getting out of active duty and not being able to immediately enter in the airlines, which is kind of like the natural progression for people and you know the pilot space. I started thinking about other things. So I had gone to school, I'd got my MBA, and I started really thinking about like other ways to sustain myself and make money if I wasn't doing the traditional airline pilot job. So I started hitting the multifamily circuit, going to meetings, talking to people and really like understanding the power of, you know, passive investing and not just trading your time for money, but actually either building businesses or investing in properties that are going to pay, you know, passive income literally while you sleep. And that's kind of like my entry into it. I've since gone on the the traditional route. I'm a pilot for a major airline. And that kind of started me to founding my fund, Airworthy Capital. A lot of the people that I serve with in the military and a lot of the pilots I fly with don't really have access to the kind of deals that I've been seeing for 10 years because I'm plugged into these networks. I've been doing multifamily. So I'm kind of trying to bring opportunity to these sorts of projects and investments to people that I work with and fly with and trying to do like a bit of an education piece as well. But that's kind of my motivation for starting the fund and and the journey that led me there.
0: Got it. And so I understand you've invested, you had a number of single family properties. So why the jump to commercial real estate as opposed to the single family stuff?
1: There's quite a few reasons for that. One, I really started thinking about, and this is like one of the more powerful concepts I've ever come to realize, like what is my return on time? What is the best value value for me to use an hour of my time. And if you're doing anyone who's done single family, I mean, that can eat up a lot of time and it doesn't really scale. So for that same amount of time, maybe you can be managing a multifamily or now what I'm doing is self-storage. And I feel like that's scaling a lot better. I'm able to get a lot more return on the time that I put into it. I can almost do the same amount of time for a single family development or an acquisition as I'm putting into an entire self-storage facility. The second reason is being a landlord during COVID was really hard. I've had tenants that I had for a number of years that had lost their jobs, had families, and when you're dealing with people's livelihood, you know the place where they sleep, where they raise their family, and to be in a position that a lot of people were during the pandemic, where I still had mortgage payments to make, but the people that I was renting to had lost their jobs and weren't able to make the rent payments. It's just. It's a bad position to be in. And I'd rather be in something that's a little less emotionally involved and basically makes me able to sleep better at night. And so self storage is kind of it for me right now. It's, you know, we're just dealing with people's things. It's not very emotional. You can kind of be less emotionally biased towards it and kind of look at it a little bit more objectively. So that's kind of where I'm headed.
0: Got it. And so I am also very interested in the self storage space. I've been doing a little bit of homework, talking to more people, hearing more about it. And as mentioned in the, you know, before we hit record, I'm big on trends that I noticed, maybe not the traditional trends, data-driven trends, but just things I noticed. Like the reason why I got into multifamily was because it seemed that a lot of folks were eventually hitting critical mass in single family and then transitioned into multifamily. And I can't say the same about multifamily to self-storage, where most multifamily investors are going to self-storage. But I personally have noticed a lot of people that I respect in the multifamily space getting over into self-storage. So you covered a couple of the items that you really like about self-storage, but what are some of the main differences that somebody who is traditionally investing in multifamily might see if they were to invest in a self-storage deal?
1: For me, I think self-storage just has a lot fewer variables. So if you look at a multifamily deal, you might be Like, okay, this is going to be a value play. We're going to reposition this. We're going to refurnish all the units. You know, we're going to do makeovers and we're going to put in a lot of capital expenditures. In self-storage, that's not really a thing. Really, all you're looking for in self-storage is an operational efficiency. So everything is hyper-localized. You're looking maybe within like a five to 10 mile radius. And all you're trying to do is make it easy for people that are looking for storage to find your facility and get from, I'm interested to, I'm rented. And also make it a safe place to rent. So just think about lighting and you know, gated access or something like that. So, you know, we're we're not worried about the buildings kind of falling down or maintenance because most of them are just concrete and you know, metal roofing, and it's it's going to be there for a long time. So a lot fewer variables. And the other thing that I, I like too, especially as we're in a period right now of high inflation, a lot of things changing, the rents basically adjust every month. So we can quickly react to inflation. And on the downside, if you have someone who's non-performing, I mean, there's places, you know, states where it can take months to get a bad tenant out and there's lots of legal processes and fees. And now you've got that opportunity cost where, you know, that unit was not available. With self-storage, that looks like something like 45 days and you're not even doing it yourself. There's so many companies that will go and do the auction for you. And then maybe 45 to 60 days that tenant's out, you sweep out the old unit and then a new one's in. So It's just, it's a lot simpler and a lot easier to wrap your head around and the better you can understand a deal, I think the better you can see opportunities and and kind of what's a good deal and a bad deal. And so that's, that's what I really like about it.
0: Got it. And what type, so say for example, you know, multifamily, you're looking for certain characteristics, in a market that you're going to be investing in, you know, jobs, a lot of jobs coming to the market, population growth, migration patterns. Do those same sort of things apply when you're looking at a self storage deal, or is it a little bit different?
1: The same macro factors definitely come into play. You're looking for a place with, you know, economic growth where people are moving to, where people have a little bit of expendable capital to kind of spend. But what's a little bit different is a lot of it's just kind of a math equation. Like you're looking for, so many square feet of self-storage per people within like a five-mile radius because the behavior pattern for most people is they're going to search for self-storage facilities and whatever's available and convenient to them on their drive to work or wherever else that's where they're going to go so it's really your competition is hyper localized and so you can really understand these you know obviously you want like i said the macro factors to make sense you don't have a max of people from your market but After that, it's really much more focused on your five mile radius and looking at who your competition is. For example, when we go and evaluate deals, we do the kind of the secret shopping and we'll shop every other facility around us within a few miles. We'll see how much they're renting for, what their occupancy rate is, and then you can kind of get a good gauge of what your competition is, how much they're filled up and, you know, where that market lies.
0: Got it. And what about the actual business plan. You said you were looking for operational inefficiencies and you kind of covered that a little bit. Are there any CapEx projects that you're actually doing? I'm sure you have certain things where they have to be a certain standard to have people in there. But yeah, it's, it just seems so much simpler as is the theme that I'm gathering here. As we talk about self-storage, you don't need to have all the amenities and you just need a place for people to put their stuff. So what kind of if any, physical improvements are you making to these properties? And I know you covered the, you know, gated and I'm sure you'd want some sort of security on site, but anything else?
1: It's pretty basic. It's really physical access. So making sure the gate works, that it's easy to get in and out. Maybe, I mean, the biggest capexes we've had are just like, you know, a roof repair or something like that. So it's pretty simple, but you're not really trying to make it, you know, look nicer per se. It's just presentable. It's easy to find. The big thing is lighting too, because we'll also, when we do our secret shopping, we'll go at night to these places and having lights out or having like dark areas, because you think about a lot of these people that are are moving, maybe they're in a, you know, a new situation where they're recently single or like the family is broken up and that's why they're going there. So they want to feel safe accessing this unit like at 11 PM at night. So lighting is a big thing. But to speak to the first part of your question, the operational efficiencies, I just think about it from like a user standpoint. Like, okay, some of the places that we've acquired kind of have you know, like a dated way of getting entry into that place. So you go, you interact with the desk person, maybe you fill out a paper contract, write your check for the first month's rent or whatever. We try to make it the fewer touch points as possible from I'm interested to I found this self-storage facility on Google to I am now into my self-storage unit. And I've already gone through this whole onboarding process where I can get access through a lock. I can set myself up in auto pay and I can do that all on the app right after I just, you know, click the ad for the facility. So the easier you can make that for people, the easier it's going to be for them to come in and rent from you. And that's really where you see a lot of the efficiencies.
0: Wait, so I just want to, want to make sure I understand that correctly. So somebody could become a tenant essentially without even being to the property yet. Is that what you're saying? Yes,
1: absolutely. And that's kind of what we go for because a lot of the properties, the facilities that I've been managed with are remote managed. We don't have anybody physically on site 24 seven. So someone can go on the website, click through, you know, get the rent for the first month and get signed up with a credit card without actually even ever being there physically.
0: Wow. If you guys can see me right now, I'm smiling. This is amazing stuff. A lot of light bulbs turning on in my head right now. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. So, what about like asset classes? I know there's different types. I know a couple of mutual connections that we have. I've seen the deals that they're closing on, and I've seen, you know, there's climate control, there's all sorts of different ways. What type of assets? In the self storage space, are you focused on?
1: I've done both. The first deal I closed was earlier in the year, and that was a Class A. It was a really interesting project. It was actually an old brewery in Galveston, where this developer had bought a bunch of the buildings near that site and then converted this old brewery into a self storage facility. And the good thing is, Galveston, Texas, you know, hurricanes are a big thing. So what he did is raised everything eight feet above the ground, and then you know, basically all the self storage is in a concrete bunker. So I mean. Talk about like a safe place to store your things. Like that's where you'd want to be if a hurricane hit, because that's probably the sturdiest building on Galveston Island. So that was a class A, some also class B and C. And there's been a mix of climate controlled and also like outdoor ones. A lot of the class A climate controlled, you're going to see your bigger names that are, you know, the more nationally syndicated ones. And those are your competition. But like I talked about kind of in the beginning of our conversation, it's really all about, you know, your hyper localized competition. So who's within five miles of you? So do you have another climate controlled facility within five miles? What is their capacity like? Are they already rented out at 90%? Okay. Maybe there's room for growth or whatever's not being served in your local area there. So wouldn't say focus so much on just one particular class, but what classes are being underserved in that micro market that we're looking at?
0: Got it. And when you mentioned Galveston, the first thing that comes to mind is insurance. Is there any difference and I keep going back to the multifamily comparison because that's what myself and a lot of the people listening to this are more familiar with. But is the insurance premiums, are they any less than they would be for say a multifamily property just due to the nature of it? Or is it still pretty similar?
1: There's actually less insurance premiums too. And there's also some value add things you can get. Like you can offer as a service people to get their own insurance policies on what's stored there. And that's you can kind of be a broker for that. But actually the last deal that is involved in, we were able to just kind of get the same insurance policy from the seller because there's a lot less involved. You know, Technically, you've just got the structure there and then the actual contents that can be kind of on the customer to, to get insured that or however they want to do it. And that's actually another value on top of that. We have, you can get like an add-on where customers can get access to like cameras that, hey, I can like, I want to be able to monitor what's going on you know, in my hallway or in my self-storage facility. And they can get that as like an add-on feature that they can buy.
0: Got it. And where in the self-storage space do you see the most bang for your buck when you're analyzing a property and you see X, Y, or Z, you know, it's just going to be a home run. What kind of stuff are you seeing for that?
1: I think people that don't realize like how hard they're making it to rent a self-storage unit from their facility where they make you come in, you know, we're open from nine to three, maybe Tuesday, Wednesday, not Thursday, unless I'm out for lunch. And if you, especially now it's, you know, 2022, everyone uses their phone. They don't want to go through all this hassle. And if you're making it hard for someone to rent from you, there's a lot of hoops they have to jump through, or you're not automating rent collection. You're leaving a lot of money on the table because people are are just going to go to the next place up the street where they can click through on their phone and rent from there without even having to interact with somebody and, you know, being more efficient. So that's, the biggest value add someone that has really dated kind of customer intake policies and might be just be sitting there at a desk a few hours a day. And that's the only way someone can get service. You can go in there and really increase the way that they do business efficiently and really raise the occupancy rates that way.
0: Got it. It's fascinating stuff. And what is the, as far as the property management side of the house, I've heard that it's You've even mentioned it's much less cumbersome on the self-storage, but just kind of talk about what the day-to-day like is, or the you know the amount of people you need on-site for a typical self-storage facility you're dealing with.
1: Most of our deals, actually, we don't have anyone on-site full-time anymore. So we'll have maintenance personnel that are, you know, just contractors that'll come and maybe we need a repair on a gate, or we need to check a door, or when we have a move-out, we have someone just kind of like sweep out the unit. But otherwise we use a lot of third-party management. So that's just automating reports. And like I said earlier with, you know, there's fewer things to worry about than like with multifamily. So it's really just, you're having move-ins, move-outs. You can kind of flow everybody into one call center that can kind of answer all the questions and you can really open up the hours that you're available. So there's not a lot, I mean, for the ones we're doing, we don't even have anybody there on site and people can kind of just, you know, get their way through the app. And then we're able to kind of like monitor things too through like one centralized portal. Like, okay, these are our move-ins, these are our move-outs. This is the kind of units that are being rented. You know, this is maybe we should do price adjustments here. So I think it's like a lot easier to conceptualize as well.
0: Got it. And so pivoting a little bit, I want to talk a little bit more about just the syndication side of it in general. So what was your experience like? Did you invest passively in self-storage before you got involved on the general partner side or did you just jump right in? I know I've heard there's so many similarities that the learning curve is so small. What was your experience like for that?
1: My first deal was a a GP. I've been a GP before, multifamily, and I really wanted to learn how things worked and kind of get in and and get a lot of exposure and understand it. So that was my first deal was a GP. and, And the next one, I think going forward, I will continue to be a GP. I just, I like... The way that the partners that I've invested with where we all have different backgrounds, like my background, you know, a little bit of military, I run an electronics company. So I really understand like online advertising and the customer experience and and how to do that. And then we have people that are, you know, come from different aspects of business. So it's really fun to be involved in those conversations and have us like, hey, here's a problem. Like a recent problem is we just have a door that people keep like propping open and it gets damaged or, you know, gets left open. We don't have someone sitting there at the desk and just talking about, hey, what are some different ways we could approach this? So we're not incentivizing people to prop this door open and kind of, you know, circumvent this. So it's really interesting to see like people like coming from different aspects of real estate, like what they would suggest or how they go about that problem. But yeah, I think I will continue to be a GP for the majority of my self-storage deals. It's Honestly, it's not, <laughs> not a lot to deal with. And we're really. Most of our conversations are about, okay, here's where our occupancy is at. Here's the move outs. Here's the reasons. I mean, here's like the specials we're doing. And here's our lead funnel. So here's how we're attracting new customers. This is what our pay-per-click ads look like. This is, you know, what the market looks like. So it's it's a lot fewer things to talk about.
0: Got it. I love that. Well, I am convinced with self-storage. So just shoot me over the sign up sheet when we're done with this. And Kind of <laughs> we'll do. I want to pivot again. I want to talk about crypto a little bit. I understand yes. that you've done a crypto startup. Is that something you're still actively involved in? Or give us a little bit of background on what that looks like.
1: Yeah, I've been involved in crypto since 2013. My undergrad is computer science. I'm a nerd. have got a lot of nerdy friends. I love tech. I like money. And so like the confluence of tech and money is pretty much crypto. And so I was mining crypto back in 2013 and I've been involved in this space in a few different cycles now. But my newest, my startup here is really involved with the problem of digital inheritance. So, I've been burned three times and a lot of people have been burned recently with, you know, the centralized exchanges going under like Celsius and they've really learned the meaning of the phrase not your keys not your coins and I learned that for the first time in 2014. There was an exchange called Cryptsy based out of Florida and the owner got hacked, moved to China and I can, you know, crypto is a public ledger. I can see what happens on my wallet. He drained my wallet and the wallets of many other people and to the tune of like hundreds of thousands of dollars the current day value. And so that was one of a few times where I got burned. And so after that, I don't have anything on centralized exchanges anymore. I have everything on a cold wallet, you know, people, ledgers, there's different kinds of ways to do that. But the problem with that is, if I get hit by a bus tomorrow, what happens to my crypto? There's not a good solution for that right now. And actually, somewhere around 30% of crypto is completely locked away because if you die and no one else has your keys, then that goes with you. So, But then the problem becomes, like, how do you do this? Do you give a part of a key to one family member? Do you give the keys to your lawyer? Well, if you give the keys to your lawyer and your crypto bag gets big enough, Your lawyer moves to Costa Rica, takes it, and he's done. Like, that's it. There's nothing to stop that person from doing that. So what we're trying to do is really solve the problem of inheritance on the blockchain. And our solution is, it's called Afterlife. And what we're doing is we're doing an on-chain consensus mechanism, which will do two things. The first very easy one, it's called the dead man switch. But think about the famous story of the guy who buried his hard drive in the landfill in England and can't recover the keys. So this would be one solution for that. Like every six months or so, it would ping you through some sort of verified mechanism. Hey, are you still there? Do you have your keys? If not, do you wanna recover them through the chain? And that's one that everybody could use. You know, The second one will be kind of like passing on digital inheritance. So it's using an M of N model. So you would designate say 10 friends and family members that you trust. And one of them would say, hey, you know, John was in a boating accident and we need to trigger a vote. We think it's time to pass on whatever the wishes may be. And so maybe six of 10 say, yes, this has actually happened. And this will trigger execution of all your contracts. So think about this. This could be I mean, I had the misfortune of losing a family member and then having there wasn't a clear copy of the most recent will. So everyone gets lawyers. They all kind of, you know. Get shitty with each other and like kind of like we all have to fight about it. But what if that will had been passed directly to the lawyer upon his passing? That would have eliminated all of that. So that's one good use case. The next use case just could be your crypto keys. Your crypto keys get passed to whoever you want. Maybe that's a custodian, you know, your executor for your will, family members. The other one, which is near and dear to my heart, I've been deployed many times. I had the letter, you know, in my locker. If I didn't make it back, this was going to go to people that I cared about. You could have video messages to your kids, you know, people you care about, messages be sent out. And the last one would be I mean, there's so many stories about this. There was one we saw last fall where this company was a custodian for Ethereum staking nodes, and someone <laughs> pressed the wrong key in their keyboard and deleted the keys. And $200 million of clients' funds are gone and unrecoverable. So maybe the CFO, the CEO, and a few other people all have like kind of this shared access to recover these keys. So one person can't press the wrong key on a keyboard and wipe out $200 million worth of funds. So that's kind of our big idea, but we want to make this accessible to everybody. So this, the first use case is going to be on an iPhone. It'll be you know interface, face ID, and it'll be a way for you to kind of, anyone could, could use Coinbase would be able to use this. And like I said, the easy case would be a backup, but then after that, we'll get into more of having like a, an inheritance type of model.
0: Uh, It's super interesting. I thought about this issue. As mentioned, I got into the crypto scene a couple of years ago, April, May, June, somewhere in there, 2020, right at the beginning of the last big boom cycle. And as my bags started to grow, I started to think more about that. And I had done all this research on how to get my crypto or my coins into cold storage. And it's complicated it's extremely complicated yep. and for somebody that hasn't done that research themselves and they don't know you didn't leave detailed instructions which there's other issues with doing that it's an extremely complicated process so love that you are that you've identified that problem in our bringing together a solution for it. So is this made possible? Is this all through smart contracts that all this stuff is able to happen? Yes,
1: this will all be made possible through smart contracts using Solidity, which is basically the smart contract language of Ethereum. And our goal is to be chain agnostic. So we could operate on any chain because no one knows that there's not going to be one chain to rule them all. The future of crypto is going to look like a lot of chains talking to each other. We'd like this to be able to live on whichever you know blockchain someone is using and be able to have assets on different blockchains.
0: Got it. And is this going to be... So I have invested in crypto, but I'm still, I'd say, not by any means an expert in the understanding of how it works behind the scenes. Is what you're doing going to be backed by a coin or will coins be available to purchase and support what you're doing? Is that something that's in the realm?
1: Yeah, we're going to have our native blockchain. So think about, you know, there's a couple of different ways crypto is useful. Bitcoin is supposedly a store of value because there's a finite supply and that's why it makes it valuable, kind of like gold. Ethereum, on the other hand, is a different play. It's useful because you need ETH to do transactions on ETH. And then the fact that you can do transactions is a useful part of it. So ours will have a native token that you will need to basically store your wallet or your whatever file you're doing. You'll also need some of that coin to trigger a vote. You'll need some of that coin to participate in a vote. And so the coin is going to have value by the usage of that ecosystem.
0: Got it. Now, that's a fascinating use case. I love that you're doing that. Sean, we're running out of time for questions. So I wanted to ask you the question that I ask all of my guests. And that is uh, for a quick background. I work at Diablo Canyon Nuclear Power Plant on the central coast of California. It's set to shut down over the course of the next few years. And I've made it my mission to replace my W-2 income with income from real estate investing. So what would you offer to folks in the W2 world? I know you're still in the W2 world yourself, but you're actively working towards that. What would you offer to folks who want to escape the W2 world by utilizing real estate investing or entrepreneurship?
1: I would say first off, you're in a very privileged position because you have the opportunity to fail and fail again and fail again, and then maybe succeed on your seventh time. I've run maybe... Twelve small businesses, and I'd say maybe two of those became profitable. But the opportunity you have as a w two is when you fail, do something, don't be afraid, but make sure you have the opportunity for it to not work and you be able to go on, go to work the next day and try the next thing. So don't be afraid of that. Make sure that you're not over leveraging yourself or getting in too deep where the idea that you're testing or what you're doing, you know, you should be able to depart with that money the next day and not lose any sleep. And don't be afraid to keep trying new ideas and keep going at it. This is really the best position to be in because you're kind of like you're part-time passive investor, you know, full-time W2, but you've got really the best of both worlds. And then when it works out and you feel comfortable, you get to walk away on your own terms. That's a beautiful thing.
0: Now, it's such good advice. I love it. Now, Sean, if people wanted to connect with you or learn more about whatever it is that you're working on right now, then where should people go? My
1: fun name is Airworthy Capital. So you can go to airworthycapital.com. We're also on LinkedIn, Facebook, and you can connect with me as well on LinkedIn, Sean Chupless, and that has a link to some of the other projects I'm doing.
0: All right, Sean, well, I enjoyed chatting with you today. I Got a lot of value out of it. Ladies and gentlemen, Sean Chuplis of Airworthy Capital. Thanks so much for joining us.
1: Thanks for having me on. I appreciate
0: it. Thank you for listening to Freedom Investor Radio. If you like what you heard, make sure to rate, review, subscribe, and share with a friend.